Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. We are, are, are coming at you today with an episode that's about half uh, theory, half current events, talking some, some news and some thoughts at the same time. Remarkably, these, these two are related to each other for once. Indeed. So we're, we're talking critical race theory, of course. The, the, the school of thought uh, that uh, all Americans know and love. Um, <laughs> the most popular idea perhaps ever conceived. Yeah. That, that just per- pervades the daily life of, of everyone that's ever, you know, just touched upon the continent, really. And this has become like, it's like the new uh, pet rock on the, the right for the Republican right. They're convinced that this time, you know, this is the root of all evil. Hillary Clinton, Benghazi, uh, eat your heart out. We don't remember what those things are anymore. Now, critical race theory is all that matters. I think the most recent thing that was really quite striking was uh, Matt Gates. You know, who's desperately trying to avoid being indicted for like pedophilia and sex trafficking and various other crimes, um, was haranguing the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the top ranking military officer of the country, about whether the military is too woke and whether there's critical race theory in, in the in the army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the Space Force. Apparently, I don't know if they're doing critical <laughs> space studies or. On the issue of critical race theory, et cetera, I'll, I'll obviously have to get much smarter on whatever the theory is. Um, but I do think it's important, actually, uh, for those of us in uniform to be open-minded and be widely read. And the United States Military Academy is a university. Uh, and it is important that we train and we understand. Uh, and I, I want to understand white rage. And I'm white. And I want to understand it. So what is it that caused thousands of people to assault this building and try to overturn the Constitution of the United States of America. What caused that? I want to find that out. I want to maintain an open mind here, and I do want to analyze it. It's important that we understand that because our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and Guardians, they come from the American people. So it is important that the leaders, now and in the future, do understand it. I've read Mao Zedong. I've read, I've read Karl Marx. I've read Lenin. That doesn't make me a communist. So what is wrong? with understanding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Matt, Matt Gates, yeah, very morally righteous, just indignant, and really wanted to get to the bottom of this threat because the, the call is coming from inside the house, apparently. It's, it's the very defense forces that the right entrusts to protect us that might be inculcating the true demon that will conquer and uh, morally corrupt the country. Yeah. And let me just note for the record that Mark Milley is a piece of shit. You know, he's appointed by Trump. He, you know, sort of half-heartedly pushed back against Trump's attempt to, like, steal the election, but not in any really sort of serious way. Um, You know, he was like, like, as Spencer Ackerman was pointing out, uh, when Trump, like, cleared the the Lafayette Park protesters with with tear gas or, like, that happened from the park police, um, he was out there wearing his like field uniform and you know, it was, that's sicko shit, but it, it does Re- resist, resist, resist the liberal temptation to lionize and make a hero uh, of every person who is sensible once in a while. 
Right. Yeah. Just right? because they're, you know, a member of the military is being criticized by conservatives. That doesn't mean you have to forget about their entire previous career. Um, but I think, you know, insofar as Millie is a representation of like the officer class, the officer class really did not like Trump at all. <laughs> and um, I don't think they're really keen on, uh, you know, Matt Gates, Pizza Gates and uh, any of you know, his sort of compatriots on the extreme right. Uh, and we'll get back into this, but it does very much smack of McCarthy, Joe McCarthy attacking the army, saying the army is full of communists. Eisenhower is a communist, you know, and that was a bridge too far for a, a, a tactical misstep for McCarthy um, and what probably led to his downfall <laughs> eventually. Um, but so... Well, yeah, it's, I mean, that, that parallels some of the deep state critiques of the Trumpists, right? Like conspiracy theories can be really popular and they can be endorsed by a lot of powerful people. But at some point, if you're actually critiquing, you know, those institutions uh, themselves that usually align with the right, there's going to be some, you know, backlash within the, the right wing institutions. Because, you know, I, I know a lot of uh, military well, leaders, in fact, I, I've met and talked to a number of them for various reasons, and they might be very nationalistic for obvious reasons. They might really believe that in American exceptionalism, uh, they might even love capitalism. They might uh, really believe that uh, imperialism is, is just fine, right? Uh, but they, they tend to really be, for the most part, quite principled in what they think like the constitution means and free speech and critical thinking and so forth. Like they, they tend to think themselves quite educated and thoughtful. And so when yeah. you start as, as you know, the general said, when you start basically saying that um, West point is teaching theories about race and that makes, you know, the military, this pejorative woke and therefore that they're the bad guys you're going to get a lot of backlash because they consider themselves highly educated. And as he said, uh, to study something doesn't mean you adopt the tenets, uh, just making very simple, obvious points that anyone should make. Right. Um, but, but also he was offended, right. That it would be so easy to corrupt the character integrity of, of all the armed forces. Right. seems like a, a bit of a misstep for a right wing politician, but, uh, but you know, the Fox news and other propaganda machines jumped on it and said to fund the military. So it's quite interesting how they're, kind of there are these fissures on the right between the traditional uh, kind of I mean the idea of critiquing the military itself is usually anathema on the right and so it's, it's kind of interesting to see now there's always been these these paradoxes and conflicts right because like you know the, the illogic of uh, a war on poor people when so many poor people are veterans and then on the other hand saying you love veterans like that's that's one of many contradictions on the right but um but in, in this instance, right, you have a defense of education, a defense of specifically, he said, we need to understand white rage. And he says, I'm a white guy. We need to understand white rage. That was really obviously something to do, right, with the attack on the Capitol. So there was some obvious truths being spoken that are just kind of total cognitive dissonance to, to most of the, the Trumpist right. Yeah, I, I, I think that the, yeah, the, the conflict there. You know, it's like your average like military officer is not any kind of leftist, certainly. I mean, there are probably a few. Um, but 
I feel like the the tendency there is this like traditionalism, you know, a self, you know, s- seriousness, like 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 in terms of their own self perception, like study, reading the books, reading, you know, Thucydides and shit, like the the like being an intellectual at least of right. some like military history and and like Sun Tzu yep. and von Clausewitz and and stuff like that absolutely and the, right. you could be an incredibly reactionary person and still look at somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene who is just a bumbling fucking idiot you know just a complete nincompoop and is so gauche you know like the idea that like. I mean, just just looking at somebody like that and being unable to uh, uh, deny to yourself that this person is a complete uh, and utter intellectual non-entity, like they're just an embarrassment for the right to be associated with, right? Yeah, and I and I think that 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 like it's a similar thing that's happened with a lot of uh, you know upper class uh, suburban people where they've been pushed to the left, like at least nominally, or at least away from the right by like aesthetics, basically. It's not that like policies have changed, but just like the representatives of the right, the 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 leaders, the Trumps, the 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 Greens, the Lauren Boberts are so undeniably just shithead like morons it's it's like it's like you have to you have to respect the 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 norms and like the 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 procedures of politics you can't be blatantly like you can be a complete murderous piece of shit but you have to be like graceful about it you have to you know cite a a text from classical antiquity you can't just stomp (laughs) on people's head you know yeah yeah no, look, I, I've, I've been, again, like I said, around a lot of military officers, uh, very high-ranking officials, uh, counterintelligence uh, as well. And and they have various narratives that we would find laughable where they think they're kind of saving the world, you know, the, the idea. Yeah. I mean, I literally heard, <clears throat> heard a talk once from a general who was talking about the problem with deficits. And then in, in the same speech, he was talking about the necessity for more more uh, armed bases and, and like massive armed presence around the world in order to <laughs> kind of like so, – I mean, yeah. seriously, it was just – you didn't see the cognitive dissonance at all. But they, they valorize like various virtues, you know, discipline, uh, courage, all these things. And I'll tell you, the first reaction when Trump came on the scene and looks like he was a contender – was uh, derision and embarrassment, and they made fun of him. When it looked like he might win, the next move they made was, well, I think this guy has no principles. We could probably control him pretty easily. Yeah. Like, that was the very, the very next thing. Like, he could be a useful idiot for us. And, and, and so that's kind of, you know, the and that turned out not to be true, yeah. But, yeah. yeah, yeah, maybe getting a little back on track, um, uh, with, with, you know, with, with the critical race theory thing, you know, it's like, here we have an impeccably academic topic where it's like, oh, there's a lot of texts, there's a lot of papers and academic journals that we can go and read, you know, maybe we could cr- critique them, but like we have to critique them, you know, and uh, according to the, you know, we have to use facts and logic. You can't just uh, be a complete oaf about it, you know, Um you have to know what you're talking about or at least be able to pretend convincingly that you are. And this, you know, speaks to this guy, uh, Christopher Rufo, who has almost single handedly created the, the, the moral panic right now over critical race theory. 
And he's a guy who just straight up uh, admits. And who the hell is he, by the way? Who, who, where does he come from? Why does he have an audience? He's a, he was like a former candidate for office in Seattle, I think, like the city council or something like that. And he's, he's, uh, been with the, the, uh, Heartland Institute, which is like a climate change, uh, like a creationist and climate change denying think tank for, for many years. It's been around for a while. And um, now he's found like a new, like he's uh, creating a new pet rock for the right is incredibly lucrative and a great way to, uh, you know, just like build your brand, so to speak. And um, there, there's a interview with a a profile of him in the New Yorker by Ben Wallace Wells and uh, Rufo. He he talks about he just admits straight up to to. Wallace Wells that, um, you know, how he got started with this was that somebody sent him like a corporate, uh, anti-racism training that they found irritating. And he went from there to books by Ibram X. Kendi and uh, Robin D'Angelo. And from there went to the footnotes to find, you know, articles by, uh, critical race theory, like adherence. And uh, picked out critical race theory because it sounds bad. Like he thought it's a good <laughs> propaganda attack. He told right, uh, yeah. he told the New Yorker, uh, "quote Strung together, the phrase critical race theory connotes hostile, academic, divisive, race obsessed, poisonous, elitist, anti-American." And he was filmed at a conference, which I found on YouTube. You know, it's like talking about how like a lot of graduate students or professors would come up to him and try to argue with him about papers from critical race theory, saying, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, this has nothing to do with critical race theory. Talking about Hegel. And he's just like, he's just full of contempt for these (laughs) fucking idiots who didn't understand what he was doing, which had nothing to do with the contents of the, the, the articles or whatever. He said, I don't give a shit about this stuff. And it's, it's a a purely propagandistic uh, exercise that, that is uh, openly dishonest. On Twitter, he said, "Are you saying, Ryan, that are you saying that this has nothing to do with the contents of the text, but instead the color of the race baiting rhetoric?" Is <laughs> 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 a little play on Martin Luther King? Not sure if it works. On on Twitter, he says, "We have successfully frozen their brand, critical race theory." into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions. We will eventually turn it toxic as we put all of the various cultural insanities under that brand category. The goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. We have decodified the term and will recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. And so this, you know, it's like he, he admitted, you know, the, We've come up with, you know, we picked a, an obscure academic phrase We're 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 taking th- things that are like most objectionable to like upper racists or like dim witted white people in America. And and we're taking them out of context to make them seem much more object- uh, objectionable than they really are. And we're going to say, like, this is the Democratic Party platform. Uh 
Right. And this is, uh, there's a long history of doing this, of course. I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the reverse racism charges, uh, against affirmative action. But of course, in more recent years, you have Jordan Peterson and the quote, post-structuralist neo-Marxists that have invaded all of higher education, uh, which is a hilarious term, post-structuralist neo-Marxists, if you know anything about post-structuralism or Marxism. <laughs> uh, in fact, you, I think part of the reason, so that came first, then the, the kind of um, using the, the 1619 project as the proxy for this kind of war and moral panic to now the critical race theory. But if you, if you remember Jordan Peterson's shtick, uh, that basically ended when Slavoj Žižek debated him and uh, just completely demolished him, but also asked him to identify even one so-called, quote, post-structuralist neo-Marxist in academia, and he couldn't name one. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, so uh, you know, the emperor has no clothes with all of this, but, uh, but I think it's worth showing what they're trying to do uh, and how it's premised on a very ignorant understanding of what both racism and therefore what anti-racism are, actually, and, and how not knowing what racism and anti-racism are makes these kind of uh, huckster, grifter, propaganda attacks uh, fruitful for the right, for their base, at the very least. Uh, and liberals kind of play into it because liberals often don't really understand what racism and anti-racism are. Uh, which we could get into as well. But then we want to kind of dive into what those things actually are and, and dive into actual questions of, uh, of our history and of education, free speech, and so forth. So, uh, yeah, I think it's, a, it's an interesting and worthwhile thing to talk about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Before we get into the, the content of, of critical race theory, um, my colleague at The Week, uh, Damon Linker, has, a, has an article which is sort of like, like a kind of defense-ish of Joe McCarthy. It's a, it's like uh, a little bit passive-aggressive, um, talking about how the left has become anti-anti-critical race theory. And in the process, uh, we've, you know, become sort of defenders of, like, the excesses of critical race theory or the things that are, the, the things that uh, he doesn't like, which are being labeled as critical race theory. And he makes an explicit comparison to uh, uh, the McCarthy, McCarthyism era. He says, uh, roughly 70 years ago, the left's forebears made precisely the same move when confronted with an overly zealous demagogic critic of communism. Rather than single out Senator Joseph McCarthy for hysterical overreach, while also acknowledging that communism was a serious threat that demanded vigilance, they became instead anti-anti-communist, elevating McCarthyism into the real danger, perhaps even the only danger, and dismissing concerns about communism as a phantom threat. And that, uh, so first of all, that's historically ridiculous. That That is not at all <laughs> what happened. Um, you know, the 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 thing the thing about McCarthy so so as as linker says the, it was the case back in the day that there were a lot of soviet spies in the federal government a lot of them had already been found out by the time mccarthy got started and he had no real relationship w whatsoever with the uh you know he he just accused people at random and the function of mccarthyism was not to root out communism. It was not even concerned with communism per se. 
It was about rooting out people with progressive views on race and gender, like purging them from public life. Uh, out of and private life and, yeah. and private life, bl- I getting mean, them blacklisted from making films, all kinds of things, ruining them uh, uh, across the board. I mean, ta- like a, a classic campaign of political repression against anyone with lefty views on anything, trying to take those people, you know, guilt by association, uh, sort of kangaroo court with the House Un American Activities Committee, uh, and to 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 persecute anybody who believed in racial equality, who believed in gender equality, uh, or, you know, who believed that even if they didn't like communists at all, thought that being a super confrontational towards the Soviet Union was a no good, you know, and this, this was why Republicans in those days tolerated McCarthy, uh, until he oversteps his bounds and started attacking other Republicans like Eisenhower and the military, uh, was that they, it was quite beneficial to them to just have this absolutely unhinged crusade, you know, that, that, that turned into a witch hunt, you know, in, in the classic sense. Um, it was very damaging to the, to the Democrats politically. And it, you know, it pushed them into a defensive crouch and it ruined a ton of uh, political careers, a ton of academic careers. You know, people were like permanently tainted. Um, people had to go. They had to take all these defensive moves to to survive, you know, to 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 not be sort of run out on a rail. And um, that was the objectionable part of McCarthyism, you know, that it leveraged what was. You know, a, a a real thing, at least, you know, there's some interesting historical studies looking at what ha- what mattered, like what what were the negative consequences of having lots of Soviet spies in the government? Because there there were a lot of them There's really not anything you could point to. In fact, it maybe have it, it may have diffused tensions by allowing the Soviets to have like a pretty accurate knowledge of what the government was doing in the United States. Uh, you know, they got the nuclear weapons more quickly, but like they would have gotten those eventually anyways. Um, so, you know, it, like at the end of the day, it's like l- largely something you don't really need to have worried about that much. Um, but yeah, it's like the Rufo and his cronies are trying to do that same thing. They're trying to take critical race theory, use it to gin up this like shrieking moral panic and attack politically repressed people with progressive lefty, you know, or even liberal views on race, gender, equality of any sort, attack them. And it's working. Yes. It's working in the sense that you have town halls with really ignorant, crazy parents who are are screaming at administrators saying, you know, stop teaching critical race theory. Stop teach my daughter isn't racist. Uh, this country isn't evil. Stop. This, these are at like secondary schools, like elementary schools, high schools, critical race. So we should get into this. <clears throat> the absurdity of this, of course, is that critical race theory is, um, is actually like a, a you know, spun off of critical legal studies. It's, it's right. like really specialized among legal theorists, right? Like, Real special approach to uh, to doing analysis of of legal theory, jurisprudence, and and 
if it's taught explicitly anywhere, it's usually law schools, sometimes other grad schools, maybe undergraduate schools once in a while, uh, basically probably yeah. never in high school, right? Like, and so it's, it's already absurd on its face. But, um, but the moral panic is about this kind of miasmic conspiracy among the left and Democrats and liberals. All those things are combined into one thing, of course, um, that is itself construed as racist against white people and, and morally backwards uh, and, and morally um, judging, of course. Little kids, poor little white kids are being accused of being evil by their whiteness. This is the idea that, that some of these parents are getting from this propaganda machine, right? Yeah, and, and a number of states have actually passed laws purportedly attempting to ban critical race theory. I mean, blatantly unconstitutional, according to any like any reasonable read of First Amendment jurisprudence, saying that like you are not allowed to teach like divisive concepts or, you know, the, you, you can't mention things in the classroom that that teach that uh, concepts that show that like one race is benef benefited from you know the the structural <laughs> the the oppression of uh, people in history, you know that's right. Yeah, <laughs> it's like these mealy mouth. They there's usually it's like there's a bunch of stuff saying like you can't teach racism in the school, and also you can't say that white people benefit from like like slavery and Jim Crow and the uh, redlining and. <laughs> And let's let's differentiate because it's it's almost comical because like the actual language would get rid of like studying the Bible it would get rid of studying like the Constitution it would get rid of because because basically it's conflating like things that have racism in them with like the history of racist practice with like uh, telling students to become racist. To, with like being racist against the student, like it's conflating so many different objections, some of which are nonsensical, some of which are hilarious, and some of which are, you know, are, are, are like, <laughs> would, would totally counter what they actually would want to happen. It, it's just, it's, it's an absurdity, right? It's, it's, it's ridiculous to try to sort through what it would mean to enforce that document that, that, uh, that we've seen in, in various state legislatures, um, besides being totally unconstitutional, right? It's just nonsensical. Um, but that's because they're so confused about, one, what critical race theory is, two, what the actual various historical and, and political science understandings and narratives about our history are, what structural racism is or systemic racism is. I, they're, they're confused about so many things, I don't even know where to begin, right? And so maybe we can start by kind of teasing out some of these things and clarifying so that you, the listener, can help your uh, right-wing idiot uh, – just kidding well, – you know, your, your neighborhood right-wing idiot. Uh, help them understand what the basic definitions of some of these categories are and, and sift through – I mean, it's not quite the fault of some of these people because they've been fed so much bullshit and propaganda through right-wing radio and Fox News and Tucker Carlson and now Newsmax and whatever, right, that uh, – they really should sue for being, you know, victims of, of various cult abuse. But uh, we can help clarify things for you, right? So critical race theory comes from critical legal studies in the 70s and 80s. This is a response to an understanding of law. I mean, many different understandings of law posit that um, 
it's wrong to think that law is neutral in application and consequence, even if it's facially neutral. So, like, if there's formal equality, that doesn't necessarily translate into actual equality, right? And there's lots of instances we can get into with that. Um, but there's a good quote in, in, in one of the pieces we read for today uh, about, uh, you know, the majestic equality of preventing both rich and poor from sleeping under bridges, right? Yeah. So, so this, this, this gives the point, right? It's equal. It treats rich and poor people equally. Neither are allowed to sleep under bridges. And so similarly, like race-neutral legal analysis and legal theory didn't quite take into account – Perhaps this is the contention of some of the legal theorists, right? Perhaps the right approach to understanding uh, racial oppression and uh, how to combat it legally, right? And and how we should understand legal attempts to to deal with racism. And so again, very specialized has very little to do with what most of this debate is actually about, which is this this moral panic proxy culture war over. Are we the baddies, essentially? Right. And we've had that discussion time and time again about understanding our history and, and how we should think of our history and so forth. Um, so, so two different things going on. The, the, the real debate, which is this proxy, uh, about, you know, should we think of our, our history and therefore our future and our present as being imbricated with oppression? And, and how does that relate to these ideals of the declaration and so forth versus this very specialized, specific, Field of study. It's not even a theory, actually, even though it's called a theory. A field of study where different scholars are looking into uh, how law can actually perpetuate oppression, uh, even if there are kind of facially neutral or formally equal um, tenets being espoused in, in, in law. Right. So that's a, that's a kind of a basic primer for the two different things going on. Yeah, yeah, precisely. And that I think, you know, before before we uh, move on to the content, I think that that tends to demonstrate what you're seeing with the with the the, the moral panic is it's just a backlash against uh, efforts to fight racism. You know, it's like you had this this huge concern over uh, like racism in society after the George Floyd protests, and you know, so so trying to beat that back is you know the that's the goal of uh rufo in addition to just sort of like purging the left and um yeah on on the content yeah matt matt bruning has a a good uh little summary there he's studied a fair bit of uh critical critical race theory stuff and i think you're exactly right that that like the con the concept of like structural like the 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 uh operation of um structures is sort of the central tenant and i was trying to think of a decent example of this about uh and i think like uh property rights would be a good you know that that's redlining like, red redlining is a really good one I don't know. yeah redlining so here you have like a facially racist thing uh back in the day black neighborhoods can't get federal mortgage insurance so you can't get homes you can't get on the you know start building up home wealth et cetera, et cetera. You know, like, like this is sort of like part of the, you know, kind of tendrils of, of Jim Crow that spread way outside of the South, keeping black Americans in a subordinate position, um, even out, so even in places where they had the right to vote. But then, okay, so you come in with the Fair Housing Act, you know, it's like you have various anti-discrimination 
laws, civil rights act, et cetera. Now it's illegal to, to, to do explicit redlining. You can't go in and say, oh, black people, you can't have a home loan. That still does happen, but sort of set that aside. Well, what's the effect? Unless you take some steps to remedy the uh, history of past injustice, the, the, um, you know, generational inequity is going to recapitulate itself. You're going to have people growing up in, in, in families that don't own their own home. They weren't not going to be able to pass that on to their kids or they're going to have a lot less wealth. Those kids are going to grow up poorer, you know, um, and not be able to like get on that same ladder as, uh, as, as white kids who have a lot more resources, uh, for, for the like, uh, reverse reason. And so, you know, these, these, uh, problems just will just, uh, keep happening. And so you can have a completely neutral, you know, system of, of, uh, of, of property ownership. But if it starts with one subordinate caste basically not being allowed to own anything, then, you know, you have to do something about that. It's not going to go away on its own. No, I I remember, you know, the, the, the objection back in the day to all kinds of pushes for uh, racial equality were like, why can't we just talk about socioeconomic uh, conditions? Because why do we have to bring in race? And well, you, you learn that in, you know, Chicago, for example, even black families in Chicago today making $100,000 household income because of what Ryan just described are living in neighborhoods equivalent to white families making $30,000 in household income, right? So yeah. it, it doesn't so even if they've broken through barriers uh of oppression to make six figures in household income, that doesn't mean they're on the same footing as white families that have done so. And and, and the neighbor, literally the neighborhoods they live live in, but also the the inability to to benefit from uh, the transfer of wealth, especially wealth from housing, right, has has harmed these families in in discrete ways and distinct ways that relate to that specific history of racial oppression, right? Uh, so, like from the from the the you know earliest years of our country to slavery to Reconstruction to Jim Crow to mass incarceration, right? These things have all kinds of interconnected intergenerational consequences for people that aren't taken into account with these facially neutral right proposals and laws. Yeah. And that doesn't have any, I mean, that's uh, associated with law, but this more is just sort of like a general economic sure. observation. Right. Yeah. You can look at that problem from many disciplines, sociology, urban planning, right? Like legal theory, all kinds of, all kinds of academics are going to be looking into this truth and, and what that means for the kinds of theorizing they're doing that has to do with these justice questions, right? Yeah. And so another, like an actual, like critical race theory paper I read, one of the seminal ones was by Derek Bell. Um, it was about uh, the Brown versus Board of Education uh, decision and made a, you know, kind of contrarian argument i don't know a, a revisionist argument that actually that be- that decision was beneficial for white people and it was done because it benefited the the white 
population. Jim Crow had just become an international embarrassment. Like it was causing too much domestic tension and we had to get rid of it. And uh, so it was, you know. Well, and also insofar as in reality, some integration because the integration what meant busing black students into like the poorest, worst white schools, right? Sometimes, Wasn't yeah. necessarily so, so like sometimes. So, so the idea is just because something on his face sounds like racial equality, like let's stop separate but equal. That sounds good. That doesn't mean that the legal enforcement and the actual consequence of whatever policy or law is going to actually redound to the benefit of the racially oppressed group. Like, not necessarily. It's more complicated than that, perhaps, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's always, you know, the, there's there's so many ways you can look at it, but <clears throat> definitely, you know, like, that there, there, there was a strong element of we're sort of, like, putting our own house in order, you know, with the, with the whole civil rights movement. Like, we're, we're dealing with this sort of, like, intractable thing that's just, like, incredible fucking hypocrisy, and we're not going to, you know, we're, we're, we just can't sort of sit on it forever. That maybe brings me, we read a couple of essays that had some, some kind of critiques of some various, uh, some of the postulates of critical race theory, which again, uh, Brunig makes a point that like, like theory is really not a good word for what it is. You know, theory, you would think about something like the theory of gravity, Gravity, you know, it's like the, we've got a theory here. It describes what gravity does. It's not it's just a sort of like like f sort of loose collection of arguments, some of them contradicting each other. There's a lot of disputation. It's not like a sort of clean theory of, you know, like some particular operation. But that aside. Yeah, no, but just on that point real quick, it, it matters what language game you're playing, right? Because like that that's a good point. Uh, but sometimes theory, which etym etymologically means like a view of something, right? Like a, it's like a window or a view, like a vision, like you can see something, sure. right? Um, it could be broad, like political theory is like, basically, okay, we're, we're going to look at things related to the political. And there's within that, of course, there's all kinds of differences and debates and, and, and contestations and dissents and history. And, and so, right. So, like, in that sense, right, you could say that critical race theory is this, like, broad inquiry into certain legal understandings of things that involves lots of debates, different points of view, different arguments and so forth. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, and, and before we dive into, like, our take on, on it as such and what we understand it. Again, it's important to emphasize this is not at all what anyone on the right is doing at all. That this is not what they're concerned with. Uh, they, they, and we can get to what they're concerned with again and talk about their concern with like the narrative about the U.S. as, as evil and, and slavery and the, the various narratives about what that means for us today. Because usually for, for the right, what that means is don't talk about any of this because we don't want to have to do anything today and in the future to address things that are actually going on now, right? That have to do with the past. But but before we get to that, why not talk about it? Why not talk about this field of study and, and some of the critiques that we've read? Right. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think it does bear on the question of what do you do about racial injustice now? And, you know, I talked about uh, Derek Bell. Uh, he ended up in a pretty pessimistic place, uh, as, as, uh, you know, he wrote some pieces by John Gans and Sam Chris and, um, um, 
in some of his later uh, work, Bell ended up in a sort of, I don't know if it's what you call like Afro-pessimist, but he, he advanced this thing called uh, like race realism, which is basically like give up about ever being able to achieve anything like racial justice in the United States. Which longtime listeners will remember that this is basically what Corey Robbins says Clarence Thomas comes to. Yep. Yeah, I was, I was just going to mention that, actually. Um, but but yeah, the the just to like... You're never going to get, you know, the sort of whiteness, white supremacy and versus black, uh, like the whole architecture of American society depends on having someone to oppress. Just forget about it. It's never going to work out. Um, and that to me is really that's uh, not helpful. I don't think it's true either. I mean, it's it's also it's it just seems like uh, as a matter of. A long history, kind of ridiculous, you know. Like the United States is not going to last forever, you know. And the like, the thing called whiteness is not going to last forever either, you know. Imagine you think like some subordinate class in like Rome, you know, the Roman Empire in like a hundred A.D. Are these people going to be slaves for until the end of time? You know, it's like the. I mean, people will well, probably so go now, extinct. The, some you, you might remember. Look, you might remember an argument that I pushed back a little bit against, but our, our friend of the pod philosopher, David Livingston Smith, argued that in a way, racism goes back as far as you want to go in the way that he defined it, right? Uh, which is as kind of a, a cover for oppression and, and a kind of an yeah. ideological justification for, for uh, you know, outgroups being sl- literally enslaved or in other ways oppressed at the service of those who, um, you know, have power over them and benefit from them, right? So, so it kind of depends. And so therefore he, he has this conclusion that even the idea of the human inevitably leads to, uh, the idea of race, which is inevitably going to dehumanize populations and function that. So like, depends how you look at it. Right. Uh, and there's, there's lots of contestation over that, but that history should then, if that's true, then as we've said before, then the United States is no special snowflake. It's no, it's no special. Uh, it's not exceptional, as we've said before. And I think I'm not going to say that Matt Carp cribbed this from us because he probably doesn't listen to the podcast that often. But uh, he writes in, in his piece about I, I don't know if he called it a mirror or a shadow of American exceptionalism to, to think that the, the U.S. is distinctly evil or especially evil and its origins and its history. But we've long talked about that. Like yeah. to, to think that I mean. Because the history of the world is full of empire and full of uh, terrible oppression and, and, and abuse of power, it, it's kind of silly to think of the U.S. as like some special version of that that's distinct. In fact, what makes the U.S. distinct is the purported ideals that say, no, actually, we shouldn't do that. And then our history is the failure to perfect or live up to that, but the struggle by the oppressed people especially – and this is what I love when you say that like Frederick Douglass is the most American we've ever had, right? This idea that <laughs> that like if you, if you say that what it means to be American has something to do with the ideal of what, of what it means to be American, then the, the best Americans are those many groups, individuals uh, who fought against the oppression that has been from the beginning part of this country's practical history, right? And, and, and that American exceptionalism – uh, isn't true on either side that we're, we're this beautiful snowflake that God, uh, you know, appointed to, to be the best country ever, nor are we especially evil. But what is interesting is this 
uh, set of ideals that, that like Danielle Allen, who's running for, for governor of Massachusetts in her book, Our Declaration says, sets this nation state apart because we, the people in this country, theoretically, according to the ideals of the declaration, are not a people based on religion or ethnicity or a particular uh, geography, but instead upon shared political institutions of a kind of a memo that the declaration was, which says that universally it is true that humans were created by nature or nature's God, so you don't have to believe in God, uh, equal and therefore should be free to self-govern and all power exercised for or against people should be at the, you know, at their consent because the, no one is naturally superior. There's no master slave dynamic by nature. Nature does not make anyone superior to anyone else by their nature to rule over them and dominate them. And therefore all legitimate government has to be democratic and, and therefore require consent. And, and what that looks like, who knows, but those are the ideals that, that Lincoln and Frederick Douglass and any number of anarchists and socialists and other abolitionists have sought to fulfill. Um, and, you know, there are narratives that say the U.S. was not created for that purpose. It was created for a different purpose and so forth. So, so there's lots of other contesting narratives. But, like, I think clearly false are the two American exceptionalism narratives that either make uh, our history and our nation state um, – devoid of any sin or especially evil. And therefore what that means for us today is to take the history into our politics now and in the future to live up to the ideals of democracy, of socialism, of freedom and equality and, uh, and be the best peoples that we can be. Cause this is the community to which we have power to influence politically. Right? Yeah. Uh, Sam Chris points out uh, a number of, a number of issues, you know, be, being that um, <clears throat> coming from critical legal studies, you know, it just being a little bit kind of biased by uh, sort of being a product of elite lawyers who have lots of money to spend on law school, and, you know, and otherwise status. And it's and it's sort of like, yes, we can identify racism. And, and one very obvious thing to say would be like, well, the my like black people in America are poor, like the 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 disproportionately that is not you know I don't even not a majority of them are poor, but compared to white people are much more poor. You know, there there's higher rate of poverty. You know, o overall incomes are less, f fewer instances of great wealth, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's like if we just redress that thing, then maybe some of these law problems will sort of solve themselves. And that's something that you don't really see that much in the, in the criti uh, critical race theory dynamic. And this, I think, uh, you know, if I were to, you know, uh, uh, levy a, a, a criticism of not just uh, some parts of critical race theory, but We've mentioned a lot of these uh, anti-racism trainings, Robin D'Angelo's and so, so on. They're not really coming out of the critical race theory tradition, but th I think they have a, a similar, uh, they, I mean, Probably. they kind of cite the, the, a lot of the critical race theorists and, um, you know, they, they don't go for the low hanging fruit in the same way in terms of rectifying injustice which is to just take some simple material categories like income and wealth 
and you just say like, geez, there's a big old gap there. Why don't we just direct some resources to the people who don't have anything? And that's like, a th- it's like, it doesn't require any kind of law school training. And you could just say like, Oh, and you could point out, you could point out like many people have that say, for example, canceling student debt disproportionately helps uh, black Americans and, and closes the racial wealth gap. So like you, you can draw connections to, to various policies and political offerings, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this, you know, it, it, uh, 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 where I really disagree with the, the kind of Derek Bell despairing model where you just kind of give up. I mean, who knows how far you could get, but, you know, in history, you've seen just like brief moments where big gaps were closed really quickly. All of a sudden, four million freed slaves got the vote in, what was it, 1870? Um the Civil Rights Act, you know, it's like Jim, Jim Crow was broken suddenly in a in a matter of uh, months. I mean, yeah, I guess yeah, years no, in certain. I, no, I'm I'm with you, but I will say this for race pessimism, and I look to the same thing could be said like Malcolm X's uh, "The Ballot or the Bullet" speech, great speech, but but basically. Uh, what was saying, you know, we're, we're helping the Democrats. The Democrats aren't doing shit for us. And it was, you know, it came just before the Civil Rights Act came out, right? And, and so, yeah. you know, the timing, timing's kind of funny. It's like, oh, it ends up, they did some things for you. But who knows, as we've talked about before, what the role might be, because coalitions and movements are, are, are multi, um, you know, multifaceted. And like, th- there is a dynamic between, uh, the Black Panthers, um, you know, uh, Afro-pessimists, um, you, you know, Dr. King and his nonviolent – I mean, James Baldwin had a different approach to either Dr. King or to, to, to uh, Malcolm X. Uh, even, even King and Malcolm X shifted in their own views over time. Like, movements have lots of different tactics, approaches, ideas, and, and it might well be that whether it's abolitionists or race pessimists – uh, that these various forces apply pressure in different ways that can lead to these openings for for transformation. You know, so I'm I'm not gonna gonna say that there's no role to be played. Um, you know, in the same way that the the abolitionists opened the window for 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 Lincoln and for those who weren't abolitionists to to make a lot of hay, right? Yeah. Because they were play they were playing off of the abolitionists. Right. In, in, in trying to be the, the quote, compromise, the more reasonable. Right. And they couldn't have done that if they were the left, the, mo- the most leftist view or, the, or the, the most pessimistic view. And so, like, there might well be a role for this, but just in terms of like not the function politically, but in terms of the actual appraisal of history and, and um, you know, how maybe most people should think of what's possible. I tend to agree with you because I, I tend to think that hope. And the the belief in rupture and and the 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 things that really motivate action, I don't think tend to be pessimism and despair. Yeah. But but right, like but hope and possibility, and and that actually right um, is so important right now when there are so many reasons you can despair and, and be melancholic, right? Yeah, quite the contrary. You know, it's a a, a disciplined, you know. Uh, Active people who think that they have history on their side can beat a huge majority of sort of uh, uh, listless, despairing, apathetic. Yeah, 
And I think that if there's one thing that's missing on the left, it's a really, you know, a, a radical energized movement that could con, uh, contest the same thing that's developed on the right, you know, and, um, to, to go back to what we were talking about before, I, I think, you know, I'm definitely on the kind of like socialist end of how you, how should we deal with like racial injustice? But you see how racial injustice is an incredibly motivating thing. I mean, the George Floyd protests were probably the biggest protests in American history. I, don't, I mean, in terms of numbers, I don't know if you adjust that Incredibly for population. Incredibly diverse, by the way. Yeah, very diverse. Maybe even majority white. Uh, I, did, I mean, they didn't do any censuses at the time. Uh, but, you know, you had these protests and all over the place. Um, and, and Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter actually got incredibly popular with, with young people to a degree that I, I remember seeing um, one of my students showed showed me a I think it was like on Instagram, uh, a Trump supporting students who didn't want to be put in the position of um, basically wanted to say, I can be a supporter of Black Lives Matter and still be a Trump supporter. Yeah. Because black, among young people, Black Lives Matter is so popular. The movement for black life is so popular that um, that Trump supporters didn't want to be portrayed as being against Black Lives Matter. Right. Yeah, uh, which again, it might be a generational difference, uh, but but it's very interesting. I think. Yeah, there was a brief spike of support. You know, it was up to like sixty-two percent support or yeah, something these like things that. Things are fluid. They're fluid. It, They're dynamic. It went right? back down. You know, basically, like the Republican propaganda machine got going, and then it just destroyed the support among conservatives. But. Um, I think it tends to demonstrate, you know, it's like you, you have these these principles which have been, you know, instilled about like what you were talking about, the Declaration of Independence and whatnot. Uh, it's it's honored in the breach, if at all, all that shit about uh, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. But when it when you have something that is like viscerally undeniable about how like a certain group of people are just being absolutely fucked just like brutally murdered slowly by agents of the government um that i think is motivating in a way that you know i've never seen anything about like the welfare state you know like to push that kind of you know uh energy and it you know and it ties into some of our classic national heroes uh you know lincoln and and martin luther king jr and um, the fight to end slavery, you know, and like the, if you have like, if you like the United States, but you have a like sort of more uh, d reasonable view of it, you know, like, oh, we never did anything wrong except for slavery. But, you know, that was sort of, you know, like, oh, the well, best thing we ever did was getting rid of slavery. It was hard, but, you know, the right side won and so on. And so, you know, uh, that I think is maybe why the right is so freaked out about the the reaction to George Floyd is because they see possibly yeah. maybe even yeah. uh, without without admitting it to themselves that here we have a potential leftist liberal whatever you want to call it uh, um, movement that could counter well, our yes. attempt to to take uh, over the country. I mean, I 
I do think Corey Robin has a powerful general thesis about the reactionary mind, which is that it gets its power in reaction to viable threats from the left to take away power from those who have power. And that can be cultural power. That could be the wages of whiteness. That doesn't have to be just income and so forth. Right. Uh, yeah. But, but the actual, actual threats to hierarchy, actual threats to, um, you know, status quo oppression. Um, and, and so you do have, uh, I think a, a very forceful response to fights for racial justice, particularly because of that, um, that, w- I mean, we talked about this a little bit before, but the idea that it doesn't necessarily mean that the average Trump voter had to be poor or even middle class, but the wages of whiteness apply to every white person, right? The idea that you have a benefit just because you're white, um, same thing with patriarchy, same thing. Uh, you know, with so many white people who are upset that they can't be racist without consequence, right? Like the idea that they could, this is, this is another example of the wages of whiteness. I can say anything I want and there's no consequence, right? I don't get fired. I I don't get, uh, you know, I I don't, I don't get criticized. I can just do what I could be sexist, racist, whatever. I'm, I'm a white man. I could do whatever I want and I don't need to. And so like the idea that there are consequences now for that kind of behavior, that is upsetting, right, to somebody, maybe especially if they don't have other forms of power, if they're not particularly wealthy or, or don't have a prestigious job and so forth, right? Um, but, you know, added on to, to that idea that, like, anything that smacks of racial justice kind of animates that, that fear of losing that, that, that hierarchical kind of status and, and actual power is the, um, the misapprehension that racism – is about mean thoughts and is an individual thing. And yeah. I think this is super important to talk about because it allows for accusations of reverse racism, right? So, so like if I sent my white kid to an all black university and they weren't allowed to go there because they're white, see, that's racism, right? And it has no understanding for history or power or the fact that like, those institutions were created because black Americans were not allowed to go to white universities. And, and, and so like the, the idea of reverse racism just makes fun of and mocks entirely the very like historical function of certain institutions. It's like, Oh, did you really want your kid to go to the all black college? Like what, what's, what's going on there? You know, it's not just this, like, I do things differently based on the color of someone's skin. Cause that often is the thing you have to do to remedy racial oppression, right? Is say this whole group of people who've been oppressed, pressed based on, you know, perceptions of their race, which is socially constructed. Those are the people we need to then help more because they've been harmed. Well, that's not racism just because it identifies race in the solution or the policy, right? But this idea that racism is individual, it's just like, not it's the opposite of, of race neutrality or pretending there's no such thing as a race. Um, you know, it allows for these propaganda machines to then call critical theories of law or whatever as being themselves racist because they're talking about race in this very particular way, right? And they're saying things need to be done on the basis of race in a particular way. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think we need to educate, and that's why it's it's really 
a clever move on the right because to, to try to actually ban and remove not actual critical race theory and critical legal studies, because that's not being taught in these schools, but actual historical understandings of systemic structural oppression and how that relates to politics today. And maybe it leads to questions of reparations, which, uh, oh, oh no, we'd have to really understand, you know, what injustices relate to the people alive today and how they might have to have restorative justice and reparations. Boy, that, that really scares people because they might have to sacrifice something. This is, I mean, this is what Dr. King said when he moved from formal equality and fighting over the right to vote in the South to Chicago, to redlining, to actually, you know, talking about housing, to talking about, um, jobs and unemployment and discrimination in the labor market. He said, Oh, this is way harder. This is a much tougher fight. Yeah. Right. He, he got, de- he got really depressed before he was assassinated. Actually, he said, Boy, this is actually asking a lot more of people to, to, to acknowledge rights in the labor market and paying people more. And, yeah. And, and right. Like that's, that's, that's going to hit them in the wallet and that's going to get the most backlash of all. Right? That was true. Yeah. That's what happened. And I think that. So, so like, yeah. What do you, what, what, what's, that, what's your. That reaction you're talking about, like, like it's, it's very, uh, indicative, I think, of internalized neoliberalism. You know, that like, the only form of racism can be when individuals like have right. biased views. And I think it's it's part of the reason why, uh, you know, you you have these sort of like, yeah, you, you just sort of make structural observations about like economic data. And it's like average white people are benefiting from the history of past racist injustice. And conservatives are like, why do you hate white people? You know, that yes. you're, you're, it, it, le- <laughs> it leads to absurd things like David Brooks, who just compared racism to like not liking ugly people. Yeah. I mean, he literally, literally wrote a piece about like the color of your skin and then the, the gender of your skin, which is kind of hilarious. And then like, if you have bad skin, but, but this is exactly the same problem, right? It's not the same type of uh, social construction or function socially. And so like, if you don't understand, uh, Sam Chris points out, there should be a different word for like individual level, um, bad thoughts based on someone's skin color versus actual racism. I'm putting it this way. He calls it systemic or structural racism versus individual racism. I think the word is obvious. It's bigotry. You could you could be a bigot individually about any number of things. You could be a bigot yeah. about someone's religion. You, you know, you could be a uh, Islamophobe. You could be a bigot based on. You could be anti sports. You know, uh, no, about uh, ge- sex, sexuality, yeah, gender yeah. identity. You could be a bigot in any number of ways, and that's individual. But racism is everywhere about social relations, about history, and and and, and it pervades these institutions and law and, and, uh, and social practices and so forth always. Right. So like, you know, I, I get these students who like, well, we can never defeat racism because we can't control the mean thoughts in people's heads. And there's always going to be people with mean thoughts. So, so let's just shrug our shoulders and, and forget about it. Right. And it's like, well, yeah, if that's what racism is, if it's just like controlling the thoughts of people, then yeah, then we can't do that. Although that's ironically exactly what the right is doing now. They're trying to censor, the ideas, right? And the thoughts yeah. of actual academic. Anyway. Um, but if it's something that's instantiated in policy and institutions, and, and if we can, through different policies and through changing institutions, really address these things, then it really actually doesn't matter what people's thoughts are. <laughs> you know what I mean? Except insofar as they might be an obstacle to making those changes structurally, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. You, you can have like in both directions, you can have a, a personally anti-racist, uh, like, like someone who treats all different. LBJ, LBJ was a fucking bigot, but he passed, you know, he got the civil rights act through. Yeah, that's right. Right. You, you could have uh, someone who is personally scrupulously anti-racist, never treats anybody he meets with the slightest bit of prejudice, but is nevertheless structurally racist because he doesn't support unions or the welfare state, you know, or other things that could, re- you know, redress like, uh, inequalities in society. And similarly, you know, or, yeah. Or, or you can, you can have, you can have, um, you can hire as a chief of police or the head of the CIA, uh, you know, a, um, you know, queer black woman. But <laughs> yeah. if, if the policies, if the policies she's in charge of are the, at the heart of mass incarceration and torture and all these things, right? Yeah. That's the difference we're talking about, right? Yeah. And similarly, as you're saying, LBJ, you can, you can have a, a racist who's like the most anti-racist president uh, since uh, Ulysses S. Grant. Um, and similarly, uh, uh, you know, you, you could have a union with a lot of, you know, racist white people who are just, who are like, well, my destiny is tied up in, you know, my coworkers of color. And so I'm just going to sort of deal, I'm just going to join the union because that's where my, that'll help my, my money, you know, being structurally anti-racist because that's just how the sort of ended up in some kind of institution. And, um, that, you know, that I feel like, American society is so individualist that that kind of thinking is incredibly difficult to get across. It's this, yeah, that's right. It's it, and that's why the liberals love to to make heroes and villains. It's like Trump is the bad guy. It's one person. Uh, this general, we just I didn't know who he was before, but he's the new hero. It's like all at the individual level, and it, it all yeah. serves to to and like you know white fragility. It's all about letting white people uh, control. The change and, and, and like white people and their fragility that if, if, if white people take charge of their own fragility in the corporate boardrooms, like she's like talking to corporate, it's like, yes, yes, the heart of radical transformation and racial justice will be like CEOs and, and like boardrooms of white people. They're going to lead the dramatic change. Are you fucking kidding me? I'm yeah. glad you, I'm glad you, I'm glad you sold so many books off of that premise, right? Like, and this, yeah, th- this is where, you know, like we, we've had a couple of criticisms about critical race theory. I mean, I think like any body of thought, like Marxism or, or anything else, you know, it has things to recommend. It's, you know, like, like some people are probably wrong about some things, but some arguments are stronger. Some, some aren't as strong. The, the kind, the kind of foundational point that, that racism is a matter of how society is organized is undeniably it's correct. correct. Absolutely. And, 100%. and that is 180 degrees away from how people People like Robin D'Angelo view racism, which is entirely individualist. It's neoliberal. It's about like white people doing self-criticism, basically. And that's and that's right. And that's it goes with look. The, the I will say the right wing propaganda machine takes advantage of of actual bullshit from from a lot of liberals who who like not everything quote unquote woke is bad, but like the the theater of of performance and hyper focus on language and like hashtags. Things that yeah. don't actually change anything. If you're, if you're so, fo- I mean, let's, let's language police left and right. Um, but not actually change structures or policies of, of that's, that's playing right into the right wing's hand, both in, in terms of what they make fun of, but also in not actually doing any service to the groups that you're complaining about being oppressed, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think it can, you know, I think it can be good. You know, I mean, we're white guys. I think it's good to, 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 to try to think in our interactions with people of color, whether we are, you know, being a, oppressive or whatever you know it's like a, a thing that everybody should think no, about that, it's, but, it's a responsibility and, and understanding of the the significance of language and how language can harm people and how language could feed into various ideolo- ideological um stereotypes or or uh, it can function in different ways that's important but the hyper focus on language yeah can can can, can distract right yeah hyper focus on on language and you know, you read or identity to- tokenism, right? Like the kind of the kind of miss uh, the abuse of true identity politics, right? Which was actually intersectionality and identity politics was um, fundamentally uh, socialist and 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 understood identity not as uh, a symbol, a token, so that if you if you basically have the the same power structures and, and hierarchies intact, but you diversify them, that that is true justice. Uh, against that, the actual history is understanding instead how, say, bourgeois feminism fails to take into account the particular patriarchal and racist oppression of women of color and how they are often doing the social reproduction and, and the, the labor for, for wealthy Karens of the world, right? Like, like, Understanding social location in its many dimensions better helps us understand the picture of injustice and justice. That is the antithesis of the kind of woke idea that, like, if we all use the right language and if we if we diversify, you know, the the, the CEOs of the country and the CIA director is is uh, not white. Like, <laughs> like you couldn't you couldn't possibly get a different understanding of justice than those two, right? Yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah, but you know, trying not to be a dick, basically, that's always good. Don't be a dick. <laughs> but also, I mean, you read Robin DiAngelo's book and, you know, her, she says, okay, white people, you should be just like treating your colleagues of color at work as a sort of representative of an undifferentiated mass of, of yeah, it's, oppression. It's so condescending and ridiculous. And it, it's like, I feel like that raises a huge barrier to communication, you know, and, 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 and in particular to the creation of what might be a structurally anti-racist institution, namely a labor union, you know, it'd just be like, not I don't need to think like so, so much of this, Ryan, is <laughs> so much of this is like really obvious stuff when you think about it. So prejudice, right? Is it means prejudicial to prejudge, right? And, and and so like what we mean on an individual basis when we say somebody is being prejudiced, right? Is that they're prejudging an individual before they know that individual in their particularities. So let's say I judge you, white, black, whatever based on group associations or understandings and so forth. And, and, and that does a disservice to you as an individual because we all are snowflakes, actually. It's true. No, but, but seriously, in our, in our, this is actually an important point. Yeah, in our true. particularities, we are each worthy of respect and dignity for who we are. And that might mean that even though I, I tend to like, uh, let's say, lefty pundits, Ryan, you in particular, I really hate because of, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, you, you, you judge people for their, the content of their character and so forth without regard to, to those groups because that's how you treat individuals and how you give dignity to people and their particularities. However, that is different from making assessments 
on a broad scale. So, so for, for example, you know, I, I often have students who are like, you can't just say that every time a cop kills someone that that was racism. And I say, well, that's, that's true because that's why we have trials to weigh the evidence to find out in that particular situation, what happened if that, if it was a good shooting, a bad shooting, which is how sad is that we have those phrases, right? Um, but, but like, so yeah, in that individual case, we need to make a certain particular assessment of that person, that situation. Yes. However, can I say when I look at the data of how many people proportionate to the population and demographics are killed that are African American? Can I, can I say we have a problem with racist police disproportionately killing people of color? Yes, I can. I can definitely say that, right? I'm not going to prejudge this one instance. I'm going to look at the evidence, but like, don't tell me because you want to wait on this instance that there isn't a broader problem we can identify. Now, that, that's, that's the same kind of deal, right? Like, there can be, uh, you know, class traders. There can be people who maybe, uh, fit into oppressed groups, but that doesn't mean that they're great people. There can be people that fit, fit into the, the, the predominant groups of privilege. That doesn't mean that they're bad people. Uh, so separate out individual assessments from the actual important things politically, which are what are the broader realities socially, politically, that need to be addressed institutionally because laws have broad application, policies have broad application. And, and so like, you know, the mom who's mad because her daughter is going to be, you know, called evil because she's white. Well, that's ridiculous and that shouldn't happen and that isn't going to happen. But ma'am, please don't object to actually redressing hundreds of years of oppression and economic and, and racial injustice, right? Because because you're worried about like an uncomfortable conversation about history at your school, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, and that's maybe a good place to leave it. Um, I think you want to read the Arendt quote that uh, John Gans ends with, because I think that is a, a really good quote um, that might put a good bow on all of this. Sure. He's he's kind of inserting Arendt, who's speaking to the um, anti-communists, I suppose. Yeah. Um, right? The, da the Damon Linkers of the 1950s. Exactly. Yeah, he says... Uh, Arendt says, your aim to make of democracy a cause in the strict ideological sense contradicts the rules and laws by which we live and let live. America, this republic, the democracy in which we live, is a living thing which cannot be contemplated and categorized. Like the image of a thing which I can make, it cannot be fabricated. It is not and never will be perfect because the standard of perfection does not apply here. Descent belongs to this living matter as much as consent does. The limitations of descent lie in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and nowhere else. If you try to make America more American or a model of democracy according to any preconceived idea, you can only destroy it. Your methods, finally, are the justified methods of the police and only of the police. And as Arendt might say if she were alive today, fuck the police. <laughs> What words to live by? But, I think that's the perfect note to end on. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Oh, and before we go, because he won't plug it because he's the most self-deprecating. Literally, you've never met someone more self-deprecating and humble than Ryan Cooper. He's got a book coming out September 14th. Uh, 
apparently pre-ordering books really has a huge influence. I think they literally will beat him and throw him in the street if he doesn't get enough uh, sold in the pre-orders. So if you at all have That's any correct. affinity for his work, that is correct. If you have any affinity for Ryan for the podcast, for humanity, I dare say, please pre-order his book and uh, we'll be very happy. Email us. Uh, that you did so have a, have you know the receipts and we will uh, say anything you want on the podcast. We will thank you personally. <laughs> we will we'll do all kinds of things. So I just made that up. Does that sound good? That's pretty good. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> all right, Within everybody. reason. Within reason. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye bye.